Thank you, Ramey and Jennifer. Well, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we celebrate your resurrection this morning because of so many reasons. Of course, one of the most powerful miracles of all and the guarantee of our salvation. But your resurrection ensures our regeneration, our new birth, our resurrection life that we now live. As the Apostle Peter wrote, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And we thank you, Holy Spirit, for giving us that new life that Jesus secured for us on that cross and guaranteed by his resurrection. We praise you, Lord God, for the placement that you have given to us in glory that we wait for. Lord Jesus, your resurrection also ensures our justification, that we would be declared righteous in the heavenly courts. As it says in Romans chapter 4, the Lord Jesus, you were delivered up for our trespasses and you were raised for our justification. And your resurrection, Lord Jesus, shows us that your sacrifice was accepted, that it truly relieved us of our sin, that we have approval from heaven, that we are declared not guilty because of you and what you've done. And of course, your resurrection ensures our perfect resurrection on that final day, and we look forward to that day, a day of even greater glory for us. For as it says in 1 Corinthians, God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Lord Jesus, you are the first fruit from the dead. And we will be like you in your glorious body and resurrection. And so we anticipate that now by our serving your gospel, by focusing our thoughts and our purposes on heaven, by putting to death sin in our lives by the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord Jesus, your resurrection ensures all these things. It ensures that we would be given new life. It ensures that we would be justified. It ensures that we indeed will be raised to glory. And Lord Jesus, we pray this morning that as you are the ascended son of glory that we celebrate this morning, that as we look into Psalm 110 that predicts who you would be and clarifies your identity, that you would guide us into more of an understanding of your glory this morning. And we pray all these things for your sake. Amen. Well, Easter Sunday, of course, is a culmination of a week-long celebration that we've had as a church, a Passion Week celebrating Palm Sunday and Jesus' interest in entry into Jerusalem. We've had opportunities to meditate on so many passages of Scripture, to pray through them. We had a wonderful Good Friday service uh, where we also celebrated there as well. Well, the resurrection of Jesus guarantees to us who believe this same resurrection glory and life with God. And we've received the Holy Spirit as a down payment or as a guarantee that we indeed will be raised with Him on that final day. Now, our series has been unique this year. We've been looking at a psalm. Psalm 110 is printed for you in your worship folder this morning. But in that psalm, Yahweh, the Lord, 
gives us an oracle about a king, a prophecy about a king, and also an oath about a priest. But the most amazing thing about this psalm is that this is the same person, that he would be an eternal king, an eternal priest. Psalm 110 verse 1 says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And in verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so what we looked at this year in our series was on Palm Sunday. We, we took a look at Psalm 110 as if you will, only from an Old Testament point of view. Now, of course, that's very difficult because we know the fulfillment and everything that we read in Psalm 110 is just pointing us to Jesus Christ. The hints are not really that small of a hint. They're sort of obvious that they're pointing to Jesus. And then on Good Friday, we looked at how the psalm is used in the book of Hebrews. And my guess is that was a surprise to many of us. It's just how many times in the book of Hebrews this psalm is brought up to talk about our Lord Jesus and what he would do by his sacrifice for our sins. Well, today on Easter, we're going to look at actually two passages of Scripture very briefly. But the first one is we're going to look at our Lord Jesus himself and what he taught about that psalm about himself. And then we'll look briefly at how Luke, the writer not only of the Gospel of Luke but also the book of Acts, and how he references this passage in, to the enthronement of Jesus Christ after he ascended into glory that he was seated at the right hand. So Psalm 110 was obviously a favorite of the apostles. You know, some of you, you had a homework assignment to try to find all the references in the New Testament you could about Psalm 110. I wonder how many you found. I'll give you the answer at the end this morning. So, but Psalm 110 was a favorite psalm, obviously, of the apostles, and it's alluded to so many times in the New Testament, so I hope it's become one of your favorites this year. Well, let's begin by, first of all, looking at how the Messiah is identified from Psalm 110 by looking at Luke chapter 20. It's printed for you in your worship folder, but you can turn to your Bibles if you'd like. Uh, Luke 20, verses 41 to 44. So it simply says, Jesus said to them, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? Now, Luke in his gospel, we're just jumping in the middle here just to tell you where we are. This is the final days of Jesus' life on earth. And um, Luke is drawing very close to telling us the story of his death on the cross and his resurrection. But we're actually in the midst of a very exciting time with Jesus dealing with the religious authorities because there were five controversies that they were debating at the time with Jesus. And the religious leaders thought they could trip him up, that they were smarter than him himself. And so if you look back in Luke 20 at the beginning, uh, the first debate, if you will, or the first controversy was about his authority. I mean, who is he? If he's the son of God, I mean, really? Then the second controversy is one that really is, indicts the religious people because Jesus points out, huh, you're religious people, then why do you lack so much spiritual fruit? Interesting controversy. Then the third controversy is about paying taxes to Caesar. Well, that's a fascinating one. Taxes are always fun to discuss. It was fun back then, too. And then the fourth one was debates about the resurrection because, you know, I mean, 
you don't really have to believe all that religious stuff, do you? It's just fun to debate it. And so the Sadducees and the Pharisees were debating the nature of the resurrection. Well, now we get to the real test because Jesus basically says, well, I've had enough of your little controversies. I'm going to give you a test. And let's see if you can pass my test. It's the most important test, the most interesting of them all, Jesus' test of David's greater son. So this is the real issue. I mean, they've posed a lot of interesting religious debates and questions, but you know, that's like when people get in religious arguments, even today, they just sort of like to discuss the religious argument and try to impress one another with how smart they might be or might not be. But in this question that Jesus poses, this is the real issue. Who is the Messiah? And so these verses, 41 to 44, are the height of Jesus' self-disclosure. And he tests the leaders from Psalm 110, and they failed the test. The conclusion is that Jesus really is the Messiah. He's the son of David that this psalm is talking about, and even more so, he's the Lord. And as the Lord, he's the Son of God. And this is perhaps the most famous controversy. It's one of extreme importance in the early church, and it's why it has parallels on the gospel according to Matthew and the gospel according to Mark. It's repeated and referred to all throughout the New Testament, and it's remained of vital importance to the church ever since because it identifies Jesus as the Christ. You ever wondered if he made it clear who he was? This was extremely clear. So may we rediscover for ourselves this morning that not only is Jesus the ending of David's line, but he is also its new beginning. And so that test question is posed. He sets up the test. So here's the test. It's actually pretty simple. It's how can it be that the Christ or the Messiah, those, those words are the, referring to the same thing. So how can it be that the Christ is David's son, and Lord. Did you see that right away in the, in the first verse? The Lord said to my Lord. So this is David speaking, right? So the Lord said to my Lord. So these two identities seem to be opposed to one another. I mean, even if David's descendant were just a man, the descendants are of lesser importance than the ancestors, and so why would he refer to his future descendant as Lord? And even if the psalm's talking about some ideal ruler in the future, really to use the term Lord is too much. And so there's this growing hope of political salvation at the time, of course, when Jesus was on earth, because they were looking for a Davidic ruler to get rid of those Romans who had taken over their land. And so it's important to know, even as we want to know, who is the real Christ? Well, first of all, he would be the son of David. That's one thing that we know according to the covenant that God made with David. There are some classic passages, many of which you probably know. And they, they take a look through David's son Solomon, but they really look through Solomon to who would be the real final Messiah. So you can jot the references down for your purposes later if you want to look them up. But 2 Samuel 7.13 is a classic passage, 2 Samuel 7.13. And it simply says that he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Key word. And I will be to him a father and he will be to me a son. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. This obviously is looking beyond Solomon. 
Psalm 89, 29 and following says, I will establish his offspring forever and his throne as the days of the heavens. Speaking of David, obviously speaking more than of David, I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all I have sworn by my holiness and I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever, his throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon, it shall be established forever, a faithful witness in the skies. So we have these prophecies that are there. The people know them. And there's the classic prophecy, among others, that look directly to the Christ as coming from David. In Isaiah 11, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, David's father. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And you think about Jesus, the stories about Jesus' teaching, and you think about his manner when he was here, obviously speaking of him. Well, in that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious, looking to the final day. So, yes, the Messiah, the Christ, he would be a son of David, he would come from David's line, but the answer's not really that simple. He would also have to be a divine Messiah. As these well-known prophecies declare, you know them from Christmas season, Isaiah 9, 6 and following, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his government and of his peace there shall be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, and the zeal of the Lord himself will accomplish this. And then finally, Jeremiah 33, 14 and following, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise that I made to the house of Israel and Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David. Speaking of a descendant, that's what that word means, a branch. And he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it shall be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Speaking of Jesus Christ, the Lord is our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. And the Levitical priests shall never lack a man in my presence to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings and make sacrifices forever. So one thing I want you to notice, especially if you've been following along in our series, this Jeremiah 33 passage, did you notice it unites the offices of priest and king? Very similar to Psalm 110. And if you read on in Jeremiah 33, you will see a prediction of the arising of the church of Jesus Christ. It's a very glorious passage. Well, Jesus' point with all of this in Psalm 110.1 that he quotes and his questions is this Messiah has to be a divine Messiah, both God and man. And the answer implied is obvious when he says, well, David calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And so the the question is pretty simple. How can David call his son, who's just a man, let's say, who's even inferior to David because he's the head, how can he call him Lord? And Jesus' point is that the designation Lord in this verse in Psalm 110, it means God. 
It's a royal psalm about a king, and not just any royal psalm, a unique one that looks through Solomon, David's son, to the Messiah. It looks to the Messiah as both the son of David and the son of God. And Jesus is affirming his Davidic line of the Messiah, and in addition, he's implying that by itself that would simply be an inadequate description of who he is. He's implying that the Messiah would have to be divine. He would actually have to be the son of God. No one else could be the Messiah. He's the one that Peter declared in Matthew 16 when Jesus said, Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Well, Psalm 110 is completely and thoroughly about Jesus. He's the Christ. He's reigning on heaven. He's actively distributing his blessings and actively crushing his enemies along with the Father with all power and authority. Jesus, as the Lord in Christ, will return to complete his work and the kingdom will be established for all eternity. So the Messiah of Psalm 110 is identified by Jesus as Jesus. That's who he would be. And there's a greater victory still for this eternal priest and king. You know, it doesn't end with Easter. Is for Easter and beyond. And what Jesus is doing right now is, act, is actively crushing his enemies from heaven. Satan, demons, and anyone who's opposed to him as being the Christ. You know, in Matthew and Mark's account of this little controversy that Jesus brings up, they make it very clear that the leaders are failures. They couldn't figure out the riddle. It's too hard of a test for them. They don't really know how to answer the question. It's too hard to conceive of the answer that Jesus is obviously implying. We wouldn't want to admit that. But do you notice that in Luke's recounting of the controversy, he doesn't mention that. And that's because he wants to put the question to his readers, to you and to me. Who is Jesus? Is he the Christ? Is he the Son of God? And that's where Jesus leaves the debate. Well, the second passage I want to take us to this morning is in Acts chapter 2. Luke wrote this as well. It's really his second volume. And so in verses 29 to 36, I've printed before you, but I want to begin a little bit earlier to read you this whole storyline starting in verse 22, because it's really the pattern in which the apostles preached the gospel. So if you want to know how, how did Jesus' first disciples, his apostles, how did they tell people about Jesus and who he really was? Well, this gives us a glimpse into Peter's sermon from Pentecost. And so starting in verse 22, and we're in the middle of a sermon here, not at the end, he says, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced, my flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life, you will, 
you make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us today. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know, for certain, that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you have crucified. Now the purpose of the book of Acts is to show the triumph of the gospel, its progress in the very early church after Jesus has risen from the dead and ascended into glory and the Spirit came and descended on the apostles. And there are six major sections in the book of Acts, and each of the sections concludes with a summary statement of how successful the gospel is in going out into the world and people actually believing it once they hear it and getting their sins forgiven. Now, Acts chapter 2 is all about Pentecost. That's really the starting point of it all in the book of Acts, especially. Acts chapter 1 is just an introduction to the whole thing and the words of Jesus and his power that he would give them. Well, this little episode that we're looking at, and even the whole of chapter 2, we're only going to look at a really small section today. But it begins at the beginning of chapter 2, if you want to read it on your own. So in verses 1 to 13, you get all these events of what happened on that first Pentecost. It's quite amazing. You know, people attending from different places and different languages, and the Holy Spirit descending in power and visible power upon the, uh, the apostles. Fascinating. And then in verses 14 to 36, we get Peter's sermon. But in the section we're looking at, just the end in verses 37, is talking more and more about, well, eventually we'll talk more and more about the expansion of the church. And if we had to title Peter's sermon, probably title it something like this, Jesus is indeed both the Lord and the Christ, meaning both of them, he is God and he is man. So the Apostle Peter concludes this sermon then in verses 25 through 36. And I want you just to look there. Just look at those verses briefly. I want to show you a few things. You probably see a lot of indentations and quotations from the Old Testament. Well, you know, three psalms are actually quoted by Peter here. Very interesting, isn't it, to think about how did the apostles teach people about Jesus? And they used so much from the psalms. Well, Psalm 16 is quoted, Psalm 132 is quoted, and Psalm 110, of course, is quoted to support the claim that Jesus is has been crucified, been raised from the dead, and has ascended into heaven. He's the Messiah. So here's Peter's argument, very easy. So he quotes Psalm 16, that's in verses 25 through 28 there. He quotes these verses and declares very clearly that David's not talking about his own resurrection, but of a particular descendant's resurrection, that would be Jesus the Messiah. In fact, David's tomb and his body still here. I mean, you could go look for yourself if you wanted to. Yes, David will be raised on that final day, but he hasn't been raised bodily yet. 
That's his argument from Psalm 16. Then Psalm 132 that's alluded to in verses 30 and 31 affirms that David looked ahead because he was also a prophet. And he looked ahead by the Spirit about one who would reign one day, and he knew that God promised him a unique descendant who would actually reign eternally. There would be no end to his reign, like there would be for just a normal human king. And then Psalm 110 gets quoted, and it declares that this reign of the greater son of David as the Messiah. It's the clincher of the argument in Psalm 110. Jesus is the greater son of David. It's been looking forward to the Messiah. And you know what? He's not here. He's enthroned in heaven. He's been seated on the throne. That's where he is, if you want to look for him, you see. And God made him both Lord and Christ, meaning that he declared him this, that he's accomplished these things. He is the eternal Son of God, deity, and he is the Christ, the Messiah, a descendant of David, a human being with body and soul, just like you and me, so that he could perfectly represent us, although pure, without sin. So the evidence piles up in Peter's sermon. You have the witness of the Old Testament, so all these psalms are quoted. You have the witness of the disciples. You notice in verse 32, he says, we're all witnesses of his resurrection. We, we know that. We saw him. And then we have the witness of the Holy Spirit as being right with them right then and there in Pentecost. And of course, that's the most important evidence because they're staring right at it. Notice the last words then in verse 36, this Jesus whom you crucified. Well, Peter, with these simple words, is reemphasizing and retelling the whole gospel story again. It goes back to what he mentioned earlier in verse 21, if you were to look back there, where he quotes another passage from the Old Testament, Joel chapter 2, and simply says, it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. I mean, that's been the perennial question of humanity since the beginning. How can I get right with God? How can I be saved from myself? How can I be saved from my sins? Well, if you want to be saved, Peter's saying, look to Jesus. And the Holy Spirit has empowered Peter with this gospel message. And if you read the storyline, God actually convicts a lot of people of their sin, and he converts a lot of people because they realize they could have all these sins forgiven in the depth of their being if they just put their faith in Jesus and what he did on that cross for them. Amazing story. Well, let's stay focused on Psalm 110 for a moment. Because I want to talk about an area that's often overlooked, and that is to explore the ascension, that's when Jesus went up into heaven after his resurrection, and his enthronement when he was actually seated at the right hand. Now, the event itself um, has a lot of applications and implications from the Bible. There's quotations and allusions, so many that we've already seen to Psalm 110. We are only going to do a survey uh, today. But, you know, we tend to end the story with the resurrection, don't we? We tend to end the story with the resurrection. I mean, here we have the cross with beautiful white on it, symbolizing that Jesus has been raised from the dead. And then we tend to stop. And, well, what's the next event? Oh, Jesus is coming back. Okay? And so then we'll talk about the return of Christ. You know, it's it popular a while ago to say, what would Jesus do? Well, I think it's more important to ask, what is Jesus doing? Because he didn't, like, disappear. I mean, he's enthroned in heaven, reigning from on high. So what is he doing right now? And there's actually quite a bit in the New Testament. 
But every time you read, for example, the New Testament at the right hand, it's a reference to Psalm 110 directly. In fact, there are four more parts of the story that I want to bring your attention to this morning. Four more parts of the story that we often miss. So turn to Hebrews chapter 1 in your Bible, and we're not going to read it here, but I want you just to see something, and you can look it up on your own later. But in Hebrews chapter 1, we have a coronation liturgy, the coronation of a king. And it's a liturgy, it's a ceremony. Now, of course, it's adapted to fit the unique situation of the Son of God re-entering glory. Remember when Jesus prayed, Father, I'll be returning to the glory that I had with you before? Well, that's what he did. And this ceremony actually took place in heaven. Okay? It did. It was a ceremony in heaven. And that's what the author of Hebrews is pointing us to. The adoption of, this, of the rightful heir and the son and the proclamation that he would be king in his enthronement. So if you look very quickly at the introduction, in verses 1 through 5, you have Jesus declared as the son of God and son of David. This is part of the enthronement ceremony. Who is he? This one who's just entered glory. He's the Son of God and the Son of David. Then if you look in verses 6 through 12, what you have here is that he's presented as the rightful inheritor of the throne and the one who is to be served and worshipped as the eternal God. This is no normal king that's being enthroned, you see. He would reign forever as the Son of God. So that's what you see there is his presentation. He is to be worshipped. And then in verses 13 and 14, at the end of the enthronement ceremony, he's enthroned on high as the Messiah with angels, attending him, doing his bidding, and serving the heirs of salvation, those among humanity whom God would save. And then notice in verse 13 that the author bring, brings in the coronation verse at the very end, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Unbelievable. It's like Psalm 110 is like everywhere in the New Testament. How did it get there? How do we miss it so much and so often? But it was already alluded to at the beginning, so if you look in verse 3 of Hebrews, you see him being seated after he made purification for sins, seated at the right hand, his priesthood. So that's part one, something that we often miss. Jesus was ascended into glory, well then he was installed as the king. Well, second part that we often miss is what he's doing right now, and that is summarized in the word intercession. Intercession. I mean, what is Jesus doing now? Good question. He has a present ministry, and a couple verses that bring that out for us would be Romans chapter 8, 34, which simply says, Christ Jesus is the one who died, but more than that, who's been raised, who's at the right hand of God, and who indeed is interceding for us. And in Ephesians chapter 1, in the beginning, verse 18 and following, it simply says that you may know the immeasurable greatness of of his power, God the Father's power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that's named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him, and here's the key phrase, head over all things to the church, which is his body the fullness of him who fills all in all. So when we talk about Jesus' ministry of intercession, there's so much we could talk about, but it's really the constant mercy and grace that he brings into our lives. 
the power also that he exercises on behalf of his church. He cares about us in this wicked world, protects us, is with us in suffering, and ultimately will vindicate everything we go through for the cause of his name. Psalm 110.2, going back to the psalm, the second verse says, The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. See, this is the fulfillment of Psalm 110 again, verse 2. He's ruling on high. And so it's often talked about his session. That's the king is in session. The king is reigning. That's what Jesus is doing. So that's the second part that I wanted to bring to your attention. He's enthroned. Now he reigns. And then the third part I want to bring in is a little bit different and talk about, well, what's, what's the value for us uh, right now? Well, he's an ever-present hope for the church. I mean, even by just sitting there enthroned, if you will, it's our hope. And so we read in Colossians 3, for example, at the beginning, if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth, for you've died and your life is hidden with God in Christ, with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. So it gives us hope. If you've been united with Christ in his death and in his resurrection, the way you get united is by faith. It's very simple, by faith in him. Then you know you have a future with him. And you know that, in a sense, you already dwell in heaven with him. And you can set your hearts and your mind on those things. You don't have to worry as much about earthly things. Then the fourth part to bring up is the conquest. Oh yeah, there's a conquest coming. Um, Now there's some of it going on, and in the future, we'll see it in its open glory. So more about what Jesus is doing now, and will do in the end. In 1 Corinthians 15, 24, it says... Then comes the end when he, speaking of Jesus, delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. So what's Jesus doing now? He's crushing his enemies. He's killing off people that don't bow the knee to him. That's what he's doing. So currently some of his enemies are being crushed. Others he's going to wait. Others he's saving and pouring his grace upon them, but on top of all this, he's directing history exactly the way he wants to direct it. He's got angels doing his bidding that are employed to exercise some of his power. Demons are losing on many fronts, and we often talk about missions here in this church and how you go to the ends of the earth and you see people and the gospel actually toppling demonic strongholds. Well, the gospel of the kingdom is being proclaimed by the church. That's part of the meaning in Psalm 110, verse 3, of the volunteer force that would be given to this king. Psalm 110, 3 says, Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. In holy garments, from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. And that's part of that fulfillment of that psalm, is the action of the church and volunteering in the service of this king who sits on, on high and is enthroned and rules over all things. We want to serve him and do his bidding in this world. Well, a lot more is coming, though. 
the return of Jesus into this world order, and he will vindicate himself, vindicate his church, vindicate all his saints, vindicate this present world order that is under the dominion of sin and is waiting for relief and redemption. When he comes, he will vindicate it in the establishment of his millennial kingdom and then the final consummation of all things with the new heaven and the new earth. Revelation 11:15 says, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. The Messiah of Psalm 110 is enthroned. We're seeing and experiencing his power and glory right now. Every day is the church. I hope you're looking in the right places so that you can see it. We're looking for our hope. We're looking and we're eagerly expecting this future kingdom because there's a whole lot more victory coming out of Easter morning with this eternal priest and this eternal king, this Jesus, our Christ. Again, Psalm 110 is clearly messianic. It clearly emphasizes both the kingship and the priesthood of who the Messiah would be. This psalm, especially verses 1 and 4, is directly quoted to and alluded to how many times in the New Testament? Anybody have a number that they found you want to throw out? Over 25 times. I count 29, so see what you get. But over 25 times this psalm is quoted. And by now we realize that every time the New Testament even just picks out a little phrase from the psalm, the writer is intending to reference that whole psalm and all of its glory and all of its praise. Our Lord Jesus is the fulfillment of the psalm. And so today we considered his identification as the Messiah, his enthronement in heaven, and that there's still a greater victory. And in the psalm, as Psalm 110 ends, as we've looked at before, verses 5 through 7, you can read about the end and how it falls out. But his great accomplishment on earth that we celebrate today is Easter, because at that cross, our sins were paid for, because we can't pay for them ourselves. No matter how much good we think we do, it never eradicates the evil that's deep within our hearts. It can't do it. No matter what religious activities we devote ourselves, no matter how much money we give to the poor, no matter how many good works we do, no matter what we think it is that might make us right with God, it falls short. Because everyone falls short. I fall short. You fall short. There's no one who has not fallen short of the glory of God. But Jesus, the perfect one, would not only offer up his life, a perfect life, for our sins and being the eternal son of God, it could actually wash away all of it. That's amazing because he didn't have to die for his own sin. He could die for yours maybe and wash it all away, and he was raised from the dead so that it would be an eternal security that we would be justified before God. We'd be made right with God. Oh yeah, we still know that at our core of our being, we're sinners, but we're sinners saved by grace, and we stand in Jesus' righteousness. We don't claim our own. We don't now turn around as Christians and say, I'm good enough to get in heaven, because we're not. Jesus is the one that makes our entryway, and we follow on his righteousness. So I want to just close by reading Romans chapter 1. The introduction to the book summarizes so many of these things we've been talking about. So Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, 
called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. So how about you? If you put your faith in Jesus Christ, Where do you stand? Easter Sunday, and actually every single Sunday that the church gathers is a celebration, a commemoration of Easter, really. It's Resurrection Day, and it reminds us that He is risen, just as He said. May you have a happy and blessed Easter afternoon. God bless you.